The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to the latest edition of Skin in the Game. I'm your host. My name is Nathan Bell. I'm the Portfolio Manager for the Investmart slash Intelligent Investor Growth and Income Portfolios. And today joining me is the birthday boy. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Nate. Good to be here. Alex is our small cap manager and I think it's fair to say, mate, that our brains are like mush this morning. They are. There's many numbers floating around, many results, many companies to think about. So hopefully we don't mix things up too much. Okay, so we've got so many companies to get through at the moment that we just tried to pick eight that uh, are relevant to us, our portfolios, and hopefully also to you listening. There's obviously been a lot more results over the past week, um, but we can't cover everything. And what we're going to do today is keep our answers to one minute so essentially, this is something that our producer, Stephanie, thinks is impossible for us to do. I reckon we should get a gong in the room <laughs> so we can hit it when we reach the one minute mark. So we've got one minute to talk about each stock and then you get cut off. So you've got to get straight to the point. And we've also got a couple of questions from Anthony that we'll uh, answer at the end of the podcast. So the first one is for me, Alex, I can tell you don't even have a clock. So you're going to be no good at doing the timing. So uh, I'm going to give myself an extra 10 seconds. And the stock I'm going to look at is Transurban. Now, it's one of the biggest mistakes I think of my intelligent investor life was not upgrading Transurban back in 2011 or 12. I think the share price might have been $3.50. It's now around $12. It's been an absolutely incredible stock. Not only has it uh, essentially four times your money uh, when you're throwing dividends, but it's just been a distribution growth monster. And everything seems to be going very well for the company. Uh, it, it's a wonderful company. It obviously has monopolistic assets. It's been very well run. Uh, it's got quite a lot of debt, but and the valuation just seems to me to be absolutely sky high. And the, But the bigger issue, I think, at the moment is that it's actually paying more um, distributions that are actually higher than the, the cash it's bringing in each year. And the last time I saw that, uh, was pre-GFC. So this business can't just continue on uh, increasing the distribution. So if you own the stock, you just have to, uh, if you're going to hang on to it, I think you've just got to lower your expectations because uh, the company can't grow as fast as it has been, despite the fact it's bought uh, some recent acquisitions and grow the distribution at the same time. So I still think it's excellent quality business and I'm done right on one minute and 10 seconds. Alrighty, for Alex, me, car sales. Car sales. So car sales reported, um, and the key feature for the result was the week showing in the display uh, revenue, and so that's when OEMs or banks and financiers and things advertise on car sales platform alongside the classifieds. Um, the core business performed well. There were the subscriptions with dealers and the listing revenue and the data revenue performed strongly. Um, but it seems like because the new car sale market, OEMs. Um, Car manufacturers are selling fewer cars, and so um, there's an incentive for them to spend less on advertising. So that partly reflects where the, the economy is, um, and it's an earnings headwind for car sales. Can we just go back quickly to the display advertising? Can you just explain why that's so important? It's so important because of the margin, because just imagine a website, you'll have a, a banner ad which might have, you, you, they might be remunerated via just displaying it or perhaps some click-through revenue. There's almost no associated cost with that. So if you lose that revenue, that's a, almost a 100% contribution to the EBITDA line. 
So it's, it's very difficult to offset that. Now, the core business did do reasonably well at offsetting that. Uh, on an underlying basis, it grew by 8%. There was also the contribution from the South Korean business, which Castle has recently moved to 100% ownership of. Um, that business is performing well. Um, but it's the Australian business that makes up most of the valuation. So I think in the near term, earnings growth is likely to be um, soft. I'm expecting low single digits. On the earnings yield of about 5%, I think it, it's okay. It justifies its valuation. Um, but it'll take a lower price for me in order to top up that, that position. Perfect. So the next company was the company that everybody loves. It's CSL. And I only had a very quick look at this uh, yesterday on the way back from Canberra after our, the first part of our national roadshow. Uh, first of all, thank you to everyone in Canberra that came out. Uh, there wasn't a spare seat in the house. Uh, and it was just great to have so many people there. Uh, if anyone's interested, we're in Adelaide next week and Perth. And then I think it's Brisbane, Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, if you haven't seen any emails about that uh, yet, uh, particularly for I think the Melbourne and Sydney ones, that they're on their way. So hopefully we'll get to see you there. So CSL, again, I didn't look at it in a great amount of detail, but there was lots of big positive numbers. There was um, very strong growth in certain areas. And just some of the commentary I saw was the spread of the profits and revenue growth was probably not what people were expecting. There was a, a vaccine, the vaccine part of the business grew a lot stronger, I think, than anyone thought. That shows there's been a real recovery there. Uh, but there's actually slower growth in some areas elsewhere. Uh, I haven't done the, um, the, the diligence to go and check this, but from what I saw, even though the result was in line with what management was saying, it looked like it relied on lower taxes to get there. So in that sense, that means it's a lower quality result. And I haven't, uh, in the few uh, articles I looked at, people hadn't actually picked this up, so I'm not sure if that's 100% correct, but I just looked at the operating profit line or the EBITDA line, and it was only up by 7%. And so I'm not surprised the share price, share price come off 5% because I think the expectations were so high going in. I think there was also a bunch of investors that were hoping there would be a profit upgrade, uh, which there wasn't. They just confirmed that uh, the company would be at the top end of guidance. And management blamed tough comps, you know, high uh, growth last year for not having a huge amount of growth in some areas this year. So all in all, I think CSL remains on track, but when you've got a price to earnings ratio of 34, uh, I worked out on current growth run rates that it would take about five years of growth just to get you back to a price to earnings ratio of 20. So uh, if anyone's interested, sorry, I'm about to blow my minute, um, but there is a short case for CSL, which I haven't investigated yet, but uh, it was laid out by a fund manager called Watermark. Uh, there's a presentation, I think in October last year, perhaps. Uh, if you look on the ASX announcements website, the code is WMK. And it's just got a slide in there and it talks about increased competition in certain areas for the business. So uh, I know a lot of people just think CSL is an absolute home run and I've seen uh, some commentators out there that think this is the business you can't lose on. Uh, but it's just amazing when a stock goes from a price to earnings ratio of 17 to 34, how much people's attitudes change. And uh, it is absolutely a wonderful business. It's going to be continue to be a great business. But when you're paying 34 times earnings, you better be sure you know what the short case is and what you're paying for. Mm. Yeah, it's a tough game shorting based on valuation though, so <laughs> I'll be is. careful with that one too. <laughs> well, interesting, it actually wasn't about valuation, it was just more to the increasing competition coming from some of their most high margin uh, products, because uh, essentially they've had no competition in all of those areas, which is uh, why the growth's been so good. 
So let's get back on track. Alex, you've got one minute, Academies Australasia, and maybe just a quick 10 seconds of the background of this business and what it is. Yep, so it's a small vocational education business. We got involved in it when the um, sector was in crisis. There was lots of dodgy operators entering the space, um, ripping off students, um, and so the sector was, was tarred at that time. Um, the share prices of every operator fell, and there were lots of bankruptcies. Academies Australasia had great inside ownership. It's the longest listed player. And it survived and now it started, it's beginning to thrive. So it was actually a strong result. Um, this is a $50 million business with 12 million of net cash. In the half it made 4 million of free cash flow and there's lots of dividends to come. Um, but it was a messy result. Um, they made a poor acquisition in 2014 and they recorded some bad debts from that acquisition. Um, that business has declined a lot and that's continuing to be a drag, um, but the core international business is growing strongly and I think due to the benefits of operating leverage it's really starting to throw off some cash. Um, they also made an acquisition, sorry, they also bought some shares of Red Hill Education back in 2011. This is a competitor in the vocational education space. They made a 13x return on that investment, um, but they sold that in late 2017 and they just paid the tax on that. So when you back out the tax, you get a better indication of the free cash flow there. So um, insider ownership is enormous, management continually buys stock, the business is performing well, throwing off cash, there's a nice yield there. So um, it's, and it's still on a very low multiple. So for me, it justifies the place in the, in the portfolio. It's funny that sometimes things you see from insider owners, but 13 times uh, an investment like that, you can't complain. Yeah, well, the CEO also bought shares for himself too, so he did well on that as well. <laughs> okay, as like I said, um, you know, all the times in the past, if I could only have one thing that I could uh, make my investment decisions on, it would be insider buying or selling. Yeah, and it also helps with that sleep at night factor as well, I think, when the management own a lot of stock and and they carefully run the business. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly when you go through a downturn, at least you know what sort of behaviour to expect and hopefully they're investing when other, everyone else is worried about their balance sheets. Okay, the next one is mine. It's uh, JB Hi-Fi. It's a company that uh, I'm not sure if we've ever recommended it at Intelligent Investor, maybe a long time ago in the early days. It's really defied the short as one of the most highly shorted stocks and it just continues to chug along. It had, uh, I think it was 5%. Uh, earnings growth over the last half compared to the half before. So I thought in a year or in a period where house prices were pretty weak, um, you know, even though those pro weak property prices are quite patchy depending on where you live, what city and what suburb, I thought it was actually a pretty credible result and I don't think you can fault management who have uh, done an excellent job with the business. They keep the costs low. Uh, they haven't, uh, a bit like Harvey Norman, they sweat their shops so they don't necessarily have the um, best looking shops. Um, they're uh, sparse in terms of the actual store itself, uh, but it keeps the costs low and it keeps the margins up and they've done a great job for shareholders. The problem, as it was for Nick Scarley, who also had a very good, I thought, pretty good result, is that just what happens over the next 12 to 18 months when property prices look like they're uh, falling even faster and uh, if you see some of the times it's taking now to sell houses and the amount of listings that are out there from the people who tried to sell last year and who couldn't, uh, to me, that means I think people are still waiting for higher prices or the prices they think the market should be trading at. And I'm really interested to see what happens when all of a sudden people realise they can't get those prices for their homes, they're not coming back. Uh, and that's not going to be good for JB Hi-Fi or Nick Scarley. So I don't think they're that cheap where you're getting compensated for that sort of risk. Agreed. Um, next one for me is AL Property. I'll probably get all the numbers wrong because it's very fresh in the mind. Um, but this is a portfolio of pubs. I think they have 86 throughout Australia, some of the best pubs across the nation. 
Um, they are leased to ALH Group, which is 75% owned by Woolworths, and they're on triple net leases. So the tenant pays for most of the operational and capex costs, and AL Property receives all of the cash, and there's, no, there's very few deductions from that. Um, the big questions from the result though were the rent reviews. So um, 2018 um, was the year in which um, there was potentially a 10% uplift in their leases and they achieved that for about half of the portfolio. But I think there's a bit more pushback on the other half. It's going to conclude in the next financial year and I think that's because the tenants are pushing back on a 10% uplift. Um, they're using an independent um, review to try and settle that. Um, so we'll find that out next year. Um, there's also another rent review in 2028, which I think will move to an, an open market basis. So potentially there's a, a far greater increase coming then. Um, but some of the bigger questions, um, Ale Property has, I think, 95 hectares of, of land, which has development potential. And this is all really strategically lo located in metro areas, you know, next to existing retail and, and close to um, places where consumers are uh, are used to frequenting. So there's the potential for some multi-use development, perhaps residential and, and retail going up in the same place. Um, so there's a lot of latent value in that. Um, but for the time being, um, this business is performing to expectations. It's throwing off what I'd call a, a, a reasonable yield. It's, it's unfranked. Um, and probably the biggest question for me is valuation. So um, for my portfolio, this is the first on the chopping block. If a better idea emerges, I feel like most of that potential is in the price. Um, and especially if, if we do see some softness with the consumer, historically pubs have held up reasonably well. Um, so here's hoping that continues. But um, for me, this is reasonably fully valued and it's leaning closer towards a, you know, a soft hold or potentially a sell. I'd echo those comments as I've got it in the, the income portfolio. Just one more point I meant to make about Transurban is uh, if you own the stock and you're just so used to seeing traffic numbers go up for this sort of business, but it is worthwhile going back to the 2008-2009 period and actually just see how uh, the traffic numbers actually performed because they actually fell um, like by fairly large numbers, which means the recovery was actually very strong. But it's a good lesson in that everyone thinks that toll roads are absolutely indispensable and people will have to use them, but when you actually go into a proper recession, and I'm not necessarily saying we're having one, uh, those, when those traffic numbers come off because people actually want to avoid those tolls, uh, it can have a really big impact because essentially Transurban has a, a fixed cost base, so it has, earns really good margins from the additional marginal pa uh, passenger or driver. And so it's just something to keep in mind, particularly I think because the valuation is so high. So again, I've blown my one minute limit there, but got two stocks to go. First one was Class, uh, which I own in the growth portfolio, which uh, announced numbers this morning. Uh, I only had about one minute to have a look at it. Uh, the growth looks fairly anemic, uh, but that's okay. It's, uh, we're not really, uh, I don't own this stock for the next 12 months or two years. Uh, I'm really owning this stock for the next three or four years and hoping that it can grow its portfolio side of its business uh, as quickly as it used to be able to grow its self-managed super fund side of the business. Uh, but clearly that, that part of the business is slowing quite rapidly. But uh, also the share price has fallen uh, quite a lot too. I, um, I'm guessing it's probably down now about uh, probably maybe 60 or 70% from the highs. Um, not that I bought it there, but uh, it just shows you how low the expectations have got compared to where they used to be as compared to BGL as updates game. So I'll be having a look at that and uh, no doubt I'll make comment of that in the, the next monthly. 
So our last stock is Unibail Redamco Westfield. This is a stock in uh, both the growth and income portfolios. Uh, the result actually looked really good. This is a stock that's been pretty heavily sold down since it made the Westfield acquisition. And I think initially that was because a lot of Australian investors didn't want to own what is essentially now a foreign company. And a lot of sell-side analysts didn't want to cover the business anymore as well because Australia isn't uh, the major portion of the business anymore, or certainly not the majority. But uh, it's also, also been sold down because uh, just for fears about the European economy. But uh, I think uh, I was just reading this morning an economist, which I don't normally follow, but said um, the economy is actually doing okay. It's just the markets are a bit rattled at the moment. And I tend to take that same philosophy. It actually seems the markets are more struggling because valuations are so high rather than necessarily economies being on their knees. Uh, there's lots of scary headlines, but there's actually a bit of growth around. I don't think the US is going to recession anytime soon. And if you looked at Unibail's results, uh, across Europe, they were actually pretty good. There was like 4% increase uh, in, in earnings, and they're expecting 5 to 7% increases uh, in their earnings per share over the next few years, uh, which when you're starting with a 7.3% distribution yield, I thought that'd be excellent. Uh, I think that's excellent value for people looking for income, uh, but, and also gives you a bit of diversification out of Australia. So that's one that's uh, one of our larger holdings, and, and that's the reason why. Okay, so... That's uh, enough of the stocks for today. Anthony, thanks very much for the questions. Uh, just firstly, for anyone else that wants to send us in questions, whether it's stock specific, about the economy, interest rates, doesn't matter, we'll, we'll answer whatever we can. Maybe it's how to get your son and daughters into the stock market because uh, they can't afford a house. Uh, we'll do our best to answer any questions we can. The email address is skininthegame, all one word. So that's skininthegame at investmart.com.au. So Anthony has a two-part question. The first one, Alex. What has been the biggest change in your approach to value investing since you first started value investing? It's an easy one. Um, I came into investing, I think like most people do, where you start reading about Buffett and you start hearing about all the stocks he bought you know, on two times earnings back in the 70s. And then you start learning a few ratios and, and so you enter the market with a, a numerical approach and you're just trying to use all these um, these, these ratios and things that you've learned and, and, and apply them. And, and so I was a, a deep cigar bud investor trying to buy things on low PEs and wanted to re get really deep into the numbers. And with, with time and experience, I learned that that's not the, the best approach. And, and so for me, the biggest departure has been a shift away from that. So now I spend much more time thinking about quality, wondering where businesses are gonna be in the next five and 10 years or longer. Um, instead of worrying about what the numbers look like today and, and really trying to understand, you know, what's important that isn't in the numbers today. For me, it'd be the fallacies of valuation. When I first come in as an analyst, you just, you're with a bunch of uh, senior people who have got a lot of experience and the last thing you want to do when you first come into a, an organisation when you're fairly green is to make a mistake. So for one, I can get I can analyse a company much quicker than I used to be able to because Greg used to complain how slow I was, but <laughs> you were just that desperate not to make a mistake, so you checked every note in the annual reports and uh, and all that sort of stuff. So it took a bit of time, but for me, it's like valuation is important and it's it's even more important in certain situations. But if you're looking at something like a CSL, to me, it's much more important to be figuring out uh, the more qualitative sides. Uh, of the business, you know, what decisions are management making today that can influence the future? You know, are they thinking long-term versus short-term? Uh, these, you know, what sort of competitive advantages can this business maintain or have over the next decade? 
because if, if you pay 20 times earnings for a business and it's the right business, then most likely you're going to do absolutely fine over time. And you've all seen those charts around about how the compounding works when you're in a business for seven, eight, nine, ten years. Like, yeah, um, like it's not a logarithmic chart. It just takes off after a f few years and they're the stocks you really want to own. So, so again, it's that focus on quality, which I think most investors come to uh, when they get a bit of experience. But also just it's very easy as a value investor to try and have the discipline around selling. But uh, it's, I think you've really got to fight that urge to sell those great businesses. And I think CSL is at a point where I'm not prepared to buy it at the current price, but it doesn't need to get back to 21 or 22 times earnings or it's not cheap at 17 times earnings. There's just a price where it makes some sort of sense and then you're very comfortable with the business and who's running it and what it's going to look like in a decade, particularly now when technology is, is dismantling many competitive advantages. It's, you really don't want to be on that wrong side of technology for any business. The second part of the question is, what are your thoughts on speculative shares and portfolio limits? such as if you had five speculative shares worth 10% of your portfolio, how do you approach speculative investments in your portfolios? I, I guess I start by thinking about payoffs. So I think about the risk and return, um, the expected value of the business. Um, so I don't really think in speculative terms. I mean, there are constraints placed on the portfolios that we manage, um, you know, internal guidelines and, and, and mandated limits and that type of thing. Um, but, I mean, mathematically, if you think about, imagine if you were able to find a number of coin flips and if the potential profit was twice the loss, you know, it would make sense to fill a whole portfolio, whole portfolio with um, such coin flips because the expected value is, is what, 50 cents. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't think it, it re you know, having a hard and fast limit of saying I want 10% of my portfolio in, in speculative stocks, I don't think it... I don't think that's the right way to think. I think you should just focus on the expected value and the payoffs and, and trying to maximise the two. So I think what Anthony is saying is a, a lot of people um, who have, you know, let's say it's 90% of their portfolio in the absolute cream of the crop, blue chips, your CSLs and maybe BHPs and the banks or whatnot, and then there's this portion of their money they just want to have fun with, I think. So mm -hmm. I think once you start defining those areas, the first thing you've got to say to yourself is, I am prepared to lose this money. And in my younger days, I was prepared to have a go at some of these little things. And uh, the more I look at these speculative investments, just the more I think they're a waste of time. And it's, it's because my results have been crappy and, and they're the same intelligent investor. So we did, um, if you look at the audited performance report uh, of all the intelligent investor recommendations, you'll see the speculative column is terrible compared to our regular buyers and long-term buyers. And so and I think it was around 2015 after we got our latest report and now just regular recommendations were uh, so much better, I wrote um, a note to subscribers and said, um, provide me your feedback, should we just stop doing these speculative recommendations? And people said, no, 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 like, we, you know, we don't expect to necessarily make a lot of money, we just, mm -hmm. this is the, the fun bit of our portfolio, keep giving us the like ideas. And, uh, you yeah. know, yeah, it was so Australian and, and so we kept trying to um, have those ideas. But in terms of... Um, structuring and Howard Marks actually makes a good point in his book and he says because uh, people if you look on a chart if it's just a linear chart uh, of risk and return it looks like it says your returns increase as you take more risk and that's actually not true it's, it's actually the more risk you take the more likely you are going to lose your money so there's in a sense no free lunch on the stock market but just in terms of uh, structuring the money if you are going to have that play with your money uh, you know a couple of ideas we've had in intelligent investor in the past was 
we liked a sector, like we could see a sector was really bombed out, but it wasn't necessarily clear who the winners were going to be, but we were fairly confident one or two winners would come out okay, and we might lose one or two along the way, and one would sort of muddle through. And so um, that's exactly how we structure it. We might say, okay, we want 4% in this idea, and we'll have uh, spread it across five stocks or whatever it was. So I think there is actually merit in doing that. But the older I've got, I've just turned 43, and I feel like I've been doing this job forever. I just, I hate losing money now. And I bet on a, um, an option a couple of years ago on the Indian version of Booking.com. And, uh, and I thought, I knew it was a high risk, which is why it was fairly small, but I lost a couple of percent or 1% of my funds. And I just thought, that really annoyed me, whereas in the past, I wouldn't have minded losing 1%. And I feel like that's because the older I've got, the more conservative I've got. And I had other normal stocks that did well, and I was thinking, well, why did you do that? You actually didn't need to take that sort of risk. So I think this is a very individual thing is what I'm trying to say. And I think as long as you uh, keep strong limits on the amount of money you're prepared to lose, uh, then clearly you know yourself, which is the most important thing investing. You know how you're going to react, and therefore you're not going to blow up your portfolio. So I think that's the most important thing of all. Thanks again for the question, Anthony. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, send us in questions, and hopefully we'll see a few of you at the Roadshow. At skin in the game. To learn more about the income, growth, and small companies funds, head over to investmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at investmart.com.au.